Chapter One of Storm Cloud on Decca. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This story performed by Phil Chenevere, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Storm Cloud on Decca by E. E. Smith. First published in Astonishing Stories, June 1942. Chapter One From a Seed Tellurian Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated, was civilization's oldest and most conservative drug house. Hide-bound was the term most frequently used, not only by its younger employees, but also by its more progressive competitors. But, corporatively, Tellurian Pharmaceuticals did not care. Its board of directors, by an ironclad, if unwritten law, was limited to men of over threescore years and ten. Against the inertia of that ruling body the impetuosity of the younger generations was precisely as efficacious as the dashing of waves against the foot of an adamantine cliff, and in very much the same fashion. Ocean waves do in time cut into even the hardest rock and every century or so Tellurian Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated did take a forward step. However, rather than make a mistake, do nothing, was its creed. To that creed it adhered rigorously. Thus it did not establish branches upon other planets until a century or so of experiment had proved that no unforeseen factor would operate to lessen the prodigiously high standards of its products nor would it own or operate spaceships, as did other large firms. Its business was the manufacture of the universe's finest, most carefully standardized drugs, and it would go into no sidelines whatever. Even the location of its head office, directly under the guns of Prime Base, bore out the same theme. Originally it had been in the middle of the city, miles away from the reservation. But as Prime Base had expanded, the city had moved aside. Tellurian Pharmaceuticals, however, would not give way. It stolidly refused to sell its holdings even to the Galactic Patrol. It would not move until the Patrol should condemn its property and compel it by law to vacate. Into that massive gray building there strode a tall, lean, gray man, into an old-fashioned elevator operated by a seventy-year-old boy, into a darkish severe room whose rock-of-ages furniture had become pricelessly antique. Without a word he handed a card to the receptionist, a prim spinster of some fifty summers. Ezekiel R. Stoneley, M.D., S.C.D., Consultant in Radiation, she read precisely into a communicator, by appointment. Let him come in, please. Dr. Stoneley entered the private office of a vice-president, a young man, as T.P.'s executives went, a man scarcely sixty years of age. All ready, the consultant reported briefly. Graves is here, you said? Yes, he got in from Decca last night. How long will the demonstration take? Seven hours to the point of maximum yield, twelve for the full life cycle. Very good. 
The vice-president then spoke into the communicator. Please ask Mr. Graves to step in. Graves, the manager of T.P.'s branch upon the planet Decca, planetographically speaking, Decanor Three, was a short, fat man, and he possessed, upon the surface at least, the fat man's proverbial geniality and good nature. Mr. Graves, Dr. Stoneley, mighty glad to meet you, doctor. Graves shook hands effusively. Splendid accomplishment. You've been working on it five years or more, I hear. Six years and two months, the scientist said precisely. I cannot accompany you, of course, the vice-president interposed busily, and you appreciate that the less of communication or contact hereafter, the better. Good day. The two went out, took a cab, and soon were in Dr. Stoneley's ultra-private laboratory. It was a large room, artificially lighted, lined throughout with sheet metal, metal which, when properly charged, formed a barrier through which no harmful radiation or particle could pass. The scientist snapped on the wall shield and set to work, explaining each step to his visitor. Here are the seeds. For the present you will have to take my word for it that I produce them here. I will go through as many cycles as you please. Here are the containers, miniatures you will observe, of the standard hydroponics tanks. The formula of the nutrient solution, which, while of course crucial, contains nothing either rare or unduly expensive. I plant the seed thus in each of the two tanks. I cover each with a bell jar of plastic, transparent to the frequencies to be employed. I enclose the whole with a similar envelope. So. I align the projectors thus. We will now put on our armor, as the radiation is severe, and the atmosphere, which displaces our own of oxygen, synthetic or imported, Graves asked. Imported. Synthesis is possible, but prohibitive in cost. Importation in tank ships is easy, simple, and comparatively cheap. I will now energize the projectors, and growth will begin. He did so, and in the glare of blue-green radiance, the atmosphere within the bell jars, the very ether, warped and writhed. In spite of the distortion of vision, however, growth could be perceived, growth at an astonishing rate. In a few minutes the seeds had sprouted. In an hour the thick, broad, glossy green leaves were inches long. In seven hours each jar was full of a lushly luxuriant tangle of foliage. This is the point of maximum yield, Stoneley remarked as he shut off the projectors. I assume that you will want to take a sample? Certainly, the fat man agreed. How else would I know which the clear quill? If you were a scientist, the sight of it would be sufficient, came the dry rejoinder. Knowing that you are not, however, I am running two tanks, as you see. Take either one you like. Six days, six generations, six samples, and even the eminently skeptical Graves was convinced. You've certainly got something there, Doc, he admitted finally. We can really go to town on that. You're absolutely sure that you're covered? No trace? None whatever, Stoneley assured him. Dr. Stoneley will retire and will gradually drop from sight. I will abandon this disguise, resume my true identity as Fairchild, which has been kept alive judiciously, 
and move openly to Decca. Notes? Data? Possible observers? This machinery and stuff? Grave insisted. No notes or data have ever been written down. The knowledge exists only in my own brain. You are the first person, other than myself, ever to see the inside of this room. This apparatus will be unrecognizable before it is boxed, and I shall do the packing myself. Why? Are you by any chance apprehensive that I may slip up? Well, we can't be too sure. The fat man's blue eyes were now neither genial nor good-natured. They were piercing and cold. In this game anybody who permits any leaks dies, and anyone who knows too much dies. We don't want you to die, at least until after we get started on Decca. Nor then, the scientist interrupted cynically, if you know when you're well off. I'm the only man in the universe who can run the apparatus. It would take a mighty good man three years to learn it after I get it going. Remember that, my friend. So what? Graves' stare was coldly level. Just so you don't develop any funny ideas. I know as well as you do, however, about leaks and leakers. I don't leak. How long will it take you to get ready? Three months? Um, just about. And you? Any time. Make it three months, then. Three months it is, on Decca. The interview was ended. New Spoke, originally New Spokane, was the largest city of Decanor III. It lay in the broad valley of the Spokane River, just above the mouth of Clear Creek, which latter stream meandered along a fertile valley between mountains lofty and steep. Clear Creek Valley, all of it, and all its neighboring mountains belonged to Tellurian Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. The valley floor was a riot of color, devoted as it was to the intensive cultivation of medicinal plants which could not as yet be grown economically in tanks. Along both edges of the valley extended rows of huge hydroponic sheds. Upon the mountain sides there were snake dens, lizard pens, and enclosures for many other species of fauna. Nor was the surface all that was in use. Those mountains were hollow, honeycombed into a host of rooms in which, under precisely controlled environments of temperature, atmosphere, and radiation, were grown and studied hundreds of widely variant forms of life. At the confluence of creek and river, just inside the city limits, there reared and sprawled the company's buildings, the processing and synthesizing plants, the refineries, the laboratories, the powerhouses, and so on. In a ground-floor office of the towering administration building, two men sat in silence and waited while a red light upon a peculiarly complicated desk board faded through pink into pure white. All clear. This way, doctor. Manager Graves pushed a button, and a section of blank wall slid smoothly aside. The fat man and Dr. Fairchild unrecognizable now as the man who had once been known as Dr. Stoneley, went down two long flights of narrow steps. Along a dimly lit corridor they made their way, through an elaborately locked steel door, then into a barely furnished steel-lined room, upon the floor of which four inert bodies lay. 
Graves thrust a key into an inconspicuous orifice, and a plate swung open, revealing a chute into which the four lax forms were unceremoniously dumped. Then the two men retraced their steps to the manager's office. Well, that's about all that we can feed into the disintegrators. Fairchild lit an alsaconite cigarette and exhaled thoughtfully. Why, going soft on us? Graves sneered. No, the scientist replied calmly. The ice is getting thin. What do you mean, thin? the manager demanded. The patrol inspectors are ours, enough of them anyway. Our records are fixed, fake identities, trips, all that stuff. You know, everything's on the green. That's what you think, Fairchild countered cynically. Our accident rate, in spite of everything we have been able to do, is up three hundredths of one percent, industrial hazard rate and employee turnover about three and a half, and the narcotics division alone knows how much we have upped total bootleg sales. Those figures are all in the patrol's files. How can you give such facts the brush off? <laughs> we don't have to. Graves laughed comfortably. Even a half of one percent would not excite suspicion, and our distribution is so uniform throughout the galaxy that they can't center it. They can't possibly trace anything back to us. Besides, they wouldn't suspect us. With our reputation, other firms would get knocked off in time to give us plenty of warning. Lutzen Schiffers, for instance, is putting out heroin by the ton. Again, I say that's what you think. Fairchild remained entirely unconvinced. Nobody else is putting out the stuff that comes out of Cave 217. Demand and price prove that. What you don't seem to get, Graves, is that some of those damned lensmen have brains. Suppose they put Warsaw of Valencia, Tregency of Rigel IV, or even Kennison himself onto this job. Then what? The minute that anybody decides to run a rigid statistical analysis of our records, we're done. Ah, uh, this was a distinctly disquieting thought, in view of the impossibility of concealing anything from a great lensman who was really on the prowl. That might not be so good. What would you advise, then? Shut down to seventeen, and preferably the whole hush-hush end, until we can get our records absolutely honest and our death rates down to the old-time ten-year average, the scientist insisted. In that way only can we make ourselves really safe. Shut down? The way they're pushing us for production? Graves sneered. You'd talk like a fool. The chief would toss us both down the chute and put somebody else in here that would really produce. Oh, I don't mean without permission. Talk him into it. It's best for him as well as everybody else over the long pull. He couldn't see it. I can't either, really, grunted the manager. If we can't dope out something better than that, things have got to go on as is. I suspected so, but you asked me. The next best thing is to use some new form of death, openly explainable, to clean up our books. Wonderful, Graves snorted contemptuously. What can we possibly add to what we are using right along? A loose atomic vortex. Whoosh, 
The fat man deflated in an exclamation of profound surprise, then came back up for air, gasping. Man, you're nuts! There's only one on the planet, and it's... Or do you mean... But nobody ever touched one of those things off deliberately. Can it be done? Yes. It isn't simple, but we fellows of the College of Radiation know how, theoretically, the transformation can be made to occur. The fact that it is a new idea makes it all the better. It has never been done because it has been impossible to extinguish the things. But now Storm Cloud is putting them out. I see. Neat. Very neat. Graves' agile and cunning brain was going over the possibilities. Certain of our employees, I take it, will be upon a picnic in the upper end of the valley when this unfortunate occurrence is to take place? Exactly. And enough mythical ones to straighten out our bookkeeping. Then later we can dispose of suspects as they appear. Vortices are absolutely unpredictable, you know. People we don't like can die of radiation, or of any one of a mixture of various toxic gases and vapors, and the vortex will take the blame. And later, when it gets dangerous, Storm Cloud can blow it out for us, Graves gloated. But we'll not want him for a long, long time. No, but we'll report it and ask for him the hour it happens. Fairchild silenced the manager's expostulations. Use your head, Graves. Anybody who has a vortex go out of control wants it killed as soon as possible. But here's the joker. Cloud has enough Class A prime urgent demands on the file right now to keep him busy for the next ten or fifteen years. Therefore we won't be able to get him, see? I see. This is nice, Fairchild. Very, very nice. But the head office had better keep an eye on Cloud just the same. End of chapter 1